0: Let your voice be heard right here on WHCR, 92.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. I wish you
1: guys could have seen the video Selena made to this song two years ago.
0: It's <laughs> like four years ago. Was it four years
1: ago, but Selena, <laughs> Selena likes ago. to make videos and then tag people in these videos of, <laughs> her, good. of her singing Nicki ratchet? Minaj songs. They are beyond ratchet. It's not even ratchet. I remember one time I posted, I wish... I could find the drug that you take before you make these videos, so I could be as high I'll as you. I'll tag you. Alyssa. The so drug you that Sina has, Jesus, she doesn't do. She doesn't <laughs> drink. She doesn't smoke. She doesn't you do anything. She's <laughs> just like that.
0: You She's high on life, bro. Like you're high on,
2: high on life.
1: life, bro. World adventures. <laughs>
0: There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, and the videos are fun, and you enjoy watching them, and yes. they're on my Facebook page, and I never give out my Facebook information, so you guys won't be able to watch them.
3: <laughs> so because except, they need except If the Stanley downloads them and starts reposting them, yeah, no, they
1: won't make it to YouTube. Yeah, I know they're gonna make it. To our fan page, though, No. just wait, Selena. You don't know all the tricks I have up my ratchet sleeve. Oh no, please <laughs> don't expose me.
0: Speaking of exposing That's things, what she said. pause. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so okay, makes sense. It, it, it does. Okay, Play. so um let's talk about what happened last week. So there was again a terrorist attack that was thwarted. There was there were two American gunmen who were identified as Elton Simpson and Nader Sophie. They drove from their home in Phoenix to Garland, Texas, to a- attack a drawing contest of the Prophet Muhammad that was organized by very controversial blogger and activist Pam Geller. You have to love her, right? You have to love her. It's free speech. That's all she's been saying all week. It's free speech. We can draw and antagonize um, the Muslim community with this contest because it all has to do with free speech. So then they came. They opened fire at the provocative contest, and they wounded a security guard before they were instantly shot and killed by police. Wait,
1: so they drove all the way from Arizona to Texas just to kill people?
0: Yeah. You got to be really mad to make it all like— you ever be mad at somebody
1: and like you have to go and confront them? If it's more than five minutes away, you tend to calm down and just go home and eat some pizza.
3: Yeah, but this is like the radicalized ideology of of people who are getting radicalized through <laughs> many different means, including social media, um, and who feel. Very much aligned with their what they would call their brothers in arms overseas.
0: No, it's true. We've seen the same thing that happened at Charlie Hebdo Mm -hmm. when they continue to um, portray the Prophet Muhammad in their cartoons. Mm -hmm. So so after this happened, the FBI has ordered more U.S. terror suspects to be put under 24-7 surveillance in the wake of the shooting. FBI is also cracking down on ISIS and other terror groups for um, potential American recruits, and they're, they're recruiting a lot of millennials, too. Plus, FBI officials say that there are hundreds of active ISIS supporters in the U.S. right now, maybe even over 1,000.
1: Let's be very clear about something. ISIS is losing in the Middle East right now. They are being pushed back every day. They've lost major territories. I don't understand how they're having this much influence in Amer- on American soil. Because
3: they're good at propaganda. It's like the Republican Party. I need
1: like Who's a communications person? That
0: was funny. You were supposed to laugh. <laughs> um... <laughs> LOL. Um, So, and that's a great question, Stanley, and we can definitely ask our very special guest who we have on the line. I will introduce her now without any further ado. We have Farah Pandith, who is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Farah was also appointed as the first ever special representative to Muslim communities in 2009 by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And, of course, that was under the Obama administration. So, good morning, Farah. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining, and happy Mother's Day. I'm so happy that you're... You start off your Mother's Day with us. Aren't we special? <laughs> Aren't
4: we special? Uh, well, listen, I think it's important to have this discussion, so I'm honored to be part of your program. Definitely, definitely. Farah, uh, I hope you finish
1: Mother's Day with brunch. because that's uh, a-
4: wait, Listen, I hope everybody listening gets a, a great Mother's Day out there, and, and it's a, an important conversation that you're having as well, so you guys are working working, too.
0: Yes, we are. And guys, if you want to join this very important conversation, you can call us up at 212
1: 650
0: You can also tweet us at beherd
1: B- underscore radio. Or you
0: can leave a comment on politically preposterous. <laughs> yes, that's what you can do. Okay, so, um, you know, I give a very simple, uh, brief synopsis about what's been happening and what's initiated the FBI to step up the alerts when it comes to ISIS and their influence here in, the, in America. Um, so, Farah, I wanted to ask you, how is the US government handling the recent attack? Um, is it, what would you say?
4: So, you know, I think it's an important – you set up the, the framework really well, and I think towards the end of your description you were talking about um, how this could be happening in our country. And um, and I think, you know, you were talking about sort of the physical war in the Middle East. But I, I want to talk about the virtual war because the, the, the ideology of extremists is not something that is contained by, uh, by physical borders. Um, the ideas of the extremists, whether it's al-Qaeda or ISIS, whether it's al-Shabaab or Boko Haram, or any group like it um, permeates all over the world. And when you describe the threat, you talked about the millennial generation, and that's really want, where we need to zero in on. This is a demographic that is at threat, a threat uh, because that is the demographic from which the bad guys are recruiting. So when we think about Muslim millennials around the world, which is the group that that is being recruited um, in all over the world. We have to look at it in that context and not just look at it from an isolated point of view as to one thing that happened in Texas. This is a, as serious as that was. This is a part of a larger threat that our globe faces.
0: Right. So my follow up question to that is, what is fueling this growth, especially amongst uh, millennials? How are they communicating? Um, how, what is it? How are they enticing Muslim millennials here in the U.S.?
4: Right. So, so I would, I I want to answer that very clearly. Um, you know, this, this, this specific, uh, Demographic has undergone a very profound experience that no other generation before them has, has grown up dealing with. And that really is the context of the post 9-11 framework, right? So every single day since September 12th, 2001, they have grown up seeing the word Islam or Muslim on the front pages of papers online and offline. And they have never known any, a world in which this doesn't happen, has never happened, right? So when they think about themselves and their role in the world, they're framed by that, and they're framed by questions around identity. They're asking questions that their parents and their grandparents didn't ask. What's the difference between culture and religion? How can I be modern and Muslim? Um, Who am I really is where they're getting at. Now, one could argue that every teenager growing up asks the question, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? But there hasn't been a machinery that has the 24-7 messages that are pulling upon that crisis of identity, giving answers to The millennial generation that pulls them in a direction that is appealing to them, Um, and when you are searching for belonging, when you are searching for identity, um, and you find easily available answers uh, produced in a way that makes sense for this millennial generation, uh, both in an online space and in an offline space, you begin to see that change that's happening with this with this generation. Now, I will say we're looking very closely, obviously, at what's happening here in our country and protecting ourselves, but this. This uh, particular thing that I've described, this crisis of identity, is a profound fact that is happening across the globe. And I say that because um, when, we are, when you ask the question is how does our government think about this, it must be thought about from the demographic point of view, not from what's happening in France or what's happening in India or what's happening in Australia or what's happening in the U.S. We have to think about what's happening to millennials and how to deal with this crisis of identity, which gets to the second piece of, piece of, it, piece of the threat, right?
0: Yes, it does. Um, so we actually have on the line with us a caller richard who would like to let his voice be heard richard you're on the air
2: thank you thank you she mentioned our country i'm so glad she did because my concern was with these terrorist organizations can we add some of the police department on that list the Ku Klux Klan, the aryan nation the uh, zionist movement the nazis can we add those as terrorists also the Ku Klux Klan of this country of those are terrorists are black people. I don't know about ISIS. I'm not over there. I'm over here. We're touching hell every day for white racist Americans. Can we add them with this terrorist list? Well, you know what?
1: I think that I'm going to also petition to have Taylor Swift added on that list as well because <laughs> she terrorizes my ears. But realistically, you mentioned some groups that do deserve to be on there, and I'm not sure if they are on that list. So thank you so much for that, and thank you for calling in.
0: Right. And, guys, if you want to let your voice be heard, again, the number is 212-650-6903. We have on the line with us Farah Pandeef. She is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And, again, she is uh, the State Department's former special representative to Muslim community So, um, you mentioned so many um, good factors and good points about what is enticing millennials in particular to join ISIS um, here on. Uh, here in American soil, Alyssa, did you want to follow up to that? Yeah, you
3: know, I uh, hi Farah. My name is Alyssa. Hi. I went to a panel. Um, I guess it was like two weeks ago. It was the Women of the World Summit, and one of the segments that was done was about specifically about women um, women in jihad. And it was mm-hmm. about how young women, uh, particularly in Europe, who had gone to college, who are very Westernized, listen to Western music. Um, all of a sudden, but also Muslim. Also, um, they met men. Uh, around their age group, and these men essentially indoctrinated them and caused them to become radicalized and convinced them to uh, come to Syria, to come to the battlefield with them. Are we seeing this sort of happening in the United States as well, or is this something that's specific to Europe, or is this something that may start to happen here that is kind of flying under the radar at this point? Yeah,
4: so I'm so happy you brought in the gender thing. Let let us talk about sort of how we look at um, the people that are being recruited and and what we need to understand about this and, and debunk some of the ideas that we have. Um, for a long time after 9-11, we were looking at this threat thinking the only people that could be radicalized were guys. Um, and in fact, we have seen that obviously that is not true. Um, we saw that play out uh, on the screens all over the world during the Charlie Hebdo um, incident in January when we saw that the woman, you know, cross the border into Turkey. And, and for the first time, a lot of people were saying, oh my God, women can be radicalized. That's nothing new. This is something that has been growing over time. What is new is the, public, uh, the, the conversation in the public domain And I want to be really clear about something. When I talk about the crisis of identity, women are not immune. And the bad guys understand how important it is to recruit both boys and girls, men and women. And so you're seeing the ages of these young people, um, you know, teenagers onward. You saw the three girls from Denver, Colorado that tried to make their way to to Europe to join uh, the fighting in Syria you're seeing for sure far more foreign fighters come from the West, uh, Western Europe, uh, into into Syria. But as I said, with even though that there are only 180 people from the United States that are on that list of sort of foreign fighters that have tried to go over and got, gone, you know, gone that way, what we have to be looking at is what is the threat level for, for men and women, boys and girls in our country and around the world that is enticing them and moving them in the direction of recruitment and and building, as I said, the virtual armies. Part of the threat, obviously, are those that don't go to Syria. Some of the threat are the foreign fighters that are there. For young women, they are not just being recruited by um, by voices online that you believe might be male. They are being recruited online by men and women in very specific narratives and very specific ways, much the same way, by the way, that an advertising company might choose a particular message to deliver to a particular group that they're trying to move to buy a particular product. It is voice. It is um, the tone. It is the character of the message. It is the images. It is what you're saying. It is all those things that entice and pull somebody in a particular direction to learn more about um, you know, their ideology. And the ideology is about an us and a them. And as we begin to think about this threat, both in our country and around the world, we have to be looking at the generational pulls and, and pushes that is happening, what the bad guys are saying, who's being pulled, pulled over um, to, to the other side. And we have to build the kind of counter-narratives to, to build resilience in our country and build, build resilience in communities uh, everywhere. And I I I think what you're seeing is a tipping point within the conversation in America right now on the heels of the next presidential, you know, um, election, you're beginning to see with the horrific, you know, dangerous aspects of things that have happened in our country over the course of the last five, six months, where people are talking about these things. And as we talk about how do we think about this as Americans, what is the threat, we have to find solutions that are going to protect Americans. Pew did a, a survey in 2010 that talked about the fact that there were 2.7 million Muslims in the United States. And while that number uh, for some is controversial, uh, what we do know is that they're between the ages of 15 and 29 years old, there are almost a million young Muslims uh, right. who are American in our country. Right. And, and for,
0: I wanted to um, ask you this question. What role is oppression and poverty playing when it comes to enticing these young people? Because we know that ISIS does a really good job at spreading their message and communicating with young people. But like you said, if they're having an identity crisis, um, I'm thinking that there might be some other factors that's contributing to that. They might they might not feel successful or they might not feel a pathway of upward mobility or have different educational opportunities. And they may see ISIS as their only um, option.
4: Right. So it's a great really great question you're asking, and a lot of people have talked about that, not just in the context of, uh, of ISIS, so looking at that question in the heels of 9-11, but what we do know, the data that, that we understand over the course of the last 13 year, years since our country was attacked, is, is how people get recruited. Who are the people that get recruited, and what are the poles that move them in that direction? And I will tell you that while logically it makes sense that you would think that somebody who is not educated would do this, that the, the data doesn't bear that out. While you would also say, "My goodness, somebody has to be really poor um, and feel you know like there is, there, they have no ability to do well in life financially that 's why they 're going to go do this that 's what 's going to draw them that way. The data doesn 't bear that out either now there are indicators in, in other parts of the world um, that can that, that are compounding factors but the the core of this issue is what is happening to a millennial to make them want to belong the way young kids are being recruited to gangs it 's the same kind of sense of well, I'm giving you a mission, I'm giving you a goal, and I'm going to help you get there. There's a, there are lots of factors emotionally. You said something really important that I want to go back to. Um, the mental health component of this is a gigantic weakness in the way in which we have thought about what's happening to these adolescents and young adults. We have not integrated into our strategy of how to deal with this threat. The, and I, when I say threat, I mean the ideological threat of the extremists writ large. We have not integrated. The mental health experts and how we think about the adolescent brain, how we think about the psychology of it. We're we're, we're watching on our screens what's happened to the the. Brothers and the, you know and the trial that's going on, and people are asking questions that how can a kid who grew up in, the, in in the Boston area who had everything you know going for him you know move in this direction and it's an opportunity for us as Americans to understand what we can be setting up in our country to make sure that we, we are uh, protecting a generation of young kids who will be um, who who are susceptible to narratives that come from extremists because the bad guys are sophisticated in the online and offline space. Right, and it seems like they're reaching them before we are. And for, 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 I want to make a point that Faraz has
1: been talking about. As a person of color, I can definitely relate to this. When you when you're in a country, whether you're lower, um, you know, poor, middle class, upper class, if you're in a country where you don't feel like you're valued as a person or for or for who you are or for the color of your skin, you it's very difficult to ever fully embrace. It. And then once you start hearing rhetoric, that seems to embrace you and tells you, well, the reason the, this country or these people don't accept you is because something is wrong with them and you have to correct that. It, it's, it makes it very attractive. That's why you see a lot of people of color, African-Americans in particular, who tend to navig- gravitate towards organizations which, which are very anti-white, anti-establishment. And America has to do something to address that anger because it's very real. But, guys, we do have to go on a quick break. And I want to play this song because I thought it reflected the anger that a lot of us feel today. This is Kendrick Lamar. Let your voice be heard smack it smack it oh oh yes
0: uh we are back this is let your voice be heard right here on whcr 90.3 fm i know you can okay and stanley singing beyonce are All you right. having a beyonce moment over there don't
1: you ever question beyonce against lena oh you okay. sound like you're in the
0: agency no I or not or, or a tarot group i'm interning of that.
1: <laughs> yes i'm interning for the agency okay All Bay, Queen. That, Bay.
0: The, maybe that group needs to go on the tarot list are
1: you trying to get our show canceled
0: <laughs> stop i'm just kidding guys um we have on the line with us a very special guest her name is farah pandeep she um is an adjunct senior fellow at the council on foreign relations who i love by the way shout out to the cfr I contact them like almost every week like can we get a guess? um and also um she's she was also the state department's former special representative to muslim communities i understand we have a caller on the line from my
1: favorite organization the big mango
0: we have brother omar who would like to let his voice be heard
2: Yes, hello, and you know I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. And happy Mother's <laughs> Day to all of you queens out there and to all of the men who have to be mothers in the household, And Many of us anymore. are mothers also. But, you know, look, the bottom line is I have some questions that have haunted me. When when, when you look at the ancient uh, history of Isis, the goddess Isis, she does not represent war. She does not represent violence. She does not represent hatred. So, for these people to join this organization, they should be ashamed to even name themselves after this queen. And another thing, when when President Boyd George uh, used the nine eleven incident to to disrupt that 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 part of the world where it was basically peaceful compared to the way it is now, he opened up a Pandora's box that we will be fighting a hundred year. It's predicted. A minimum of 30 to 100 years we'll be over there losing our sons and daughters and grandchildren as we speak. And what's the solution? We have uh, the right wing claims that we have a Muslim in the White House, Barack Hussein Obama. If that's true, then what is the solution to it? Because, you know, everyone has the rhetoric and everyone has their own ideology, and I respect it. But what is the solution? Thank you
1: very much for that, Brother Omar Fry. If you can answer some of those questions, oh, I'm really so happy,
4: um, Mr. Omar, I'm so happy you asked about the solution, because I happen to believe that that the ideology of the extremists is defeatable um, in a in a really real, real way, um, and I think that the solutions are available and that they are affordable, and so um, I'm all I'm all excited that that you are talking in terms of like. What do we do about this? Um, and there's some really concrete things we can think about in a, in a domestic um, capacity. But um, I'll get to that in a second. I will say, though, to, to his point about the Middle East, um, I, it isn't, I tried to say earlier, and I want to just underscore this, this is not about one region of the world. The ideology of the extremists is in every part of the world. Uh, as special representative to Muslim communities, my job on behalf of our country was to travel and speak to young Muslim millennials. Globally, and I, I visited 80 countries, eight zero. Um, and I will tell you, no matter where in the world I went—from Brazil to Zanzibar to Central Asia to Africa. Um, to Europe um, and, and, and beyond, I saw this crisis of identity happening very specifically with this generation and side by side, I saw extremist ideologies working in an online and an offline space to move these young millennials in a particular direction. And that is the threat that we're facing. It isn't about one country or one region. It's not about um, what do we do with our physical forces, which is, which is what we would call hard power. It is about the soft power machinery. How do we push back? against the ideology of the extremists and build the resilience in the communities that we need so that we are fortifying ourselves. And when I speak about the domestic pieces, um, there is stuff we can do. We're an incredible country. This is, this is an amazing um, you know, opportunity for us to take one of our greatest strengths, which is coalition building, and think broadly about how, to, how, how we face this threat. Everything that happens in terms of radicalization is absolutely local. It's one-to-one. And it's community to community. And one of the first things we have to do is to normalize the conversation about extremism. When you put that conversation, and when I speak about extremism, I am speaking specifically in this context about groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS and others like it. Um, and when we talk about that kind of extremism, what we absolutely know is that they are pulling millennials. So as we think about the the what they what they do to to and, and Um, to engage these young people online and offline. We know that local communities can find counter narratives by what we would call credible voices that can push back against the tricks that the bad guys are using to lure these kids in. So for, a, I mean, I don't know New York well enough to go community, community with you, but I can certainly tell you that what's happening in Brooklyn isn't what, what's happening in another part of the uh, part of the state. What we need to be thinking about is what are the messages that will work for a particular neighborhood? Who are the role models in that community? An athlete, an entrepreneur, a business person, a theologian, a, whoever it happens to be that makes sense and builds resilience for those kids and amplify their voices in ways that make sense for the kids.
3: Definitely, definitely. But I I just was curious, doesn't it also go beyond that? Because we're speaking a lot about identity crisis and about outreach and who's talking to these young people. Um, At the same time, we also know that some of these young people, not all of them, but a good portion of the young people that are becoming radicalized are angry about that things that they see the US government doing to Muslims in other countries um or here in this country for two examples one like the New York City Police Department spied on the Muslim community even Muslims who were not you know doing anything at all not associated to terrorism at all two the US government has been conducting drone strikes in many Muslim countries this is two factors two examples of things that influence young people to become radicalized so how do we use these people as you're talking about to counteract the narrative of the other side, when you also have an issue of these these young people are mad about things that the U.S. government is doing and that they perceive are wrong. And that's another factor in their radicalization.
4: So it's important to understand um, what what it is that we are are facing here. For sure, the U.S. government is impacting the way people perceive our country, and our foreign and domestic policies make a difference to how a person thinks about themselves, for sure, and their role in their community. I I, I absolutely agree with you on that. However, I will tell you as somebody who built first-of-a-kind initiatives in Europe and around the world for peers who are pushing back against the ideology of extremists, and I was doing this in the, I mean, when I first started working on these issues, is it, it was right after the Danish cartoon crisis in 2007. And it was in the Bush administration. And by the way, I say this as somebody who was a political appointee in the Obama administration and somebody who was a political appointee in the Bush administration. There are very few people that can say that they did both as a political. So I'm not coming to this with a political viewpoint. I'm simply saying, I'm agreeing with your point, that people can be super mad at our country and be angry about our country and our foreign policies, but at the same time do not want external ideologies coming in radicalizing their kids. So I have had conversations with people who can't stand our policy in Pakistan, for example, or Iraq, or um, on, you know, uh, global energy or whatever the issue might be, but at the same time are willing to build the kind of resilience on the ground so that external ideologies aren't luring their kids on a path of destruction and despair. And I think, you know, you you, it, you can't. We cannot simplify things so, so much to believe that, um, you know, it is only because of this foreign policy or that foreign policy that is going to, you know, unless that is changed, nobody can work with us. I promise you that my experience has proven otherwise. Um, I do agree that um, as, as the bad guys continue their narratives out there, they do use, and we know this firsthand, you do too, that they do use current events, they do use politics and policy to, to persuade and build, you saw that kind of action um, in, in 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 our in our inaction at first in Bosnia. A lot of people in Europe were radicalized because of the Bosnian War um, and began. And this isn't something, by the way, that has been building since nine eleven. We have to be looking at what has happened for the last twenty years before nine eleven. What was in the ecosystem that was building the us and them narrative? What was happening in terms of how kids were learning about their Role in communities and how external forces were helping kids move in a direction of what we would call um, not quite becoming extremist—you know, so they they become violent—but they're on that conveyor belt leading in that direction. So nothing is in a vacuum. Things don't. But what is what is very important for Americans to understand is that this phenomenon phenomenon that we're seeing right now happening with ISIS and the luring of American kids teenagers and young adults going to Syria is brand-new. The context of al-Shabaab recruitment, the context of ISIS recruitment, is a very important shift in the way uh, our, uh, that, that we're looking at the threat in our nation. And when, we, when the caller, Mr. Omar, asks about what we should be doing, we as Americans must absorb the fact that we, there is more we can do, and that the only way we can do more is if coalitions are built. To prevent young Americans from being moved in that direction, that means very open conversations about how kids are being recruited. It means parents need to be, to own up to the fact that their kids could be vulnerable um, because the bad guys are in that online space, um, because kids are going to shake Google to learn answers as opposed to going to their parents, um, and because and because they understand that the most impactful voice for young people. Are, are their own peers. You guys know that. Yes. So, how do we get peers activated with ideas from millennials for millennials that will prevent the bad guys from getting into their mind space?
3: Definitely, definitely You know, I'm going to change gears for a second here Fra, um, And we're going to just talk briefly Before you have to get off about the Patriot Act um, The If you don't know, or if our listeners don't know The Patriot Act uh, and Section 215 of the Patriot Act Is what enables the government uh, To essentially collect data en masse And um, there's a, a Court of Appeals ruling That came down this week um, That sort of ruled part of the NSA's Spying surveillance program As being unconstitutional And then there's also the fact that Section 215 is coming up for renewal on June 1st. Um, And so I guess the question is about about privacy and about liberty and also about security, which is obviously even with the Patriot Act, we see that the... There, This event in Texas sort of was not foiled beforehand. It was foiled as it was happening. Um, so is the patriotic really having any effectiveness in helping us to root out homegrown terrorism or is it, you know, is it its efficacy small and we are essentially submitting to giving up a lot of our privacy for no really good reason?
4: Um, Farah, can you get a response? World that you can have the kind of open and robust conversation um, that we are that we are having here in America. And we're very lucky to be having a conversation, even though it's become extremely political and heated, and, and I get that. Um, and I think, to answer your question, when we think about the decisions that are being made now around the Patriot Act, around Section 215, we must be thinking about looking ahead. Because what we the decisions we make now um, will fundamentally affect the progress and the shape of this threat. So while we uh, there are, I mean, I think that the jury is out on the full context of, of the information that we have received. Um, it has been uh, a very heated conversation. It is true, but when we're putting the pieces together on how somebody gets radicalized, what non-state actors they're connecting with, how we think about this, it's like you know, the, the, it's like a DNA kind of thing. What they're doing on an online and uh, and phone sense actually connects them to to various um, entities and it it builds a profile for them. We need intelligence, but the question of course is, what is legal and what is not legal? What I will say to you now is, for for those people who are embedded into this conversation and are extremely uh, active in thinking about things in one way or another, one thing I know for sure is the way in which our policymakers think, their vision right now and how they think about this is going to have significant effects on how we understand the growing threat. And by the way, the threat is growing. Um, Our planet has, one-fourth of our planet is Muslim, 1.6 billion people. 62% of that number are under the age of 30. That is the demographic from which the bad guys are recruiting. And I say that only not to be a fearmonger, but to understand that like a virus, this ideology is going after that particular demographic. And we have got to understand what the cones are that move, that move this one way or another. And we have to, as a nation, absorb what we must do to put the pieces together. And so- That's exactly right, Farah. Um, so you know what? That was, you did
0: such a great job of just bringing it down and giving us a thorough understanding of what's inciting and enticing uh, young millennials from the Muslim community into these terrorist groups and how they becoming radicalized. Um, unfortunately, we do have to end this conversation, but I want to give you time just to let our listeners know how they can follow you, um, your organization, and continue to stay
4: um, just aware of what's going on. Thank you for, for that. Um, I would say follow me on Twitter. So my Twitter uh, handle is at Farah, F-A-R-A-H. Underscore pandas. P A N D I T H. Okay, thank you again,
0: guys. And I just wanted to wrap it. I just wanted to wrap it up and say that um, when it comes to. How and why millennials are being radicalized, we have to understand the underlying issues that they're going through. Again, they are very young. Uh, we spoke about in depth how they do not feel like they have an identity. And when you know who's doing a good job at targeting them, the terrorist organizations and groups, if they can study this demographic and figure out their ins and outs and how they can uh, speak to them, how they can affect them, we can do the same thing. If it's a matter of resources, money and time and effort, we need to dedicate and be devoted to our young people who are getting lost the same way our young people are getting lost in gangs in Chicago and New York City they're being lost and getting caught up with terror groups so we're not doing something right we're not paying attention we're not listening to their voices but the other guys are and that's what we talked about today Um, on that note we do have to go to a quick break but we're going to come back and talk about the news on the news roundup right here on let your voice be heard